Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Dr. Michael Byrne is a clinical professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and director of the Interventional Endoscopy Fellowship at the Vancouver General Hospital and the University of British Columbia. He's a graduate of Cambridge University and Liverpool University and completed his Interventional Endoscopy Fellowship at Duke University. He's also CEO of Satisfy Health, which aims to use artificial intelligence to deliver precision endoscopy and imaging to the world of gastroenterology. I am so looking forward to this conversation. I'm Matt Zhao, and as always, here's your host, Dr. Curdy. Okay, welcome, Mike. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. How's it going? Where are you, where you are right now? I'm right now in rainy Vancouver. Nice. Canada. It is rainy, but um, I, I'm still jealous because it's 107 degrees outside here. <laughs> yeah, not like that here. We've had a lovely spring and summer so far, but right now it's cloudy and gray. It feels like a November day in, in Vancouver, which when ski season coming is great, but when the summer should be here, it's not so good, but it's okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's all right. So, Mike... We'll start with a simple um, and easy question. Could be a little complicated. I don't know what you're going to tell us, but <laughs> tell us about yourself. Tell us what's your story. How did it start uh, and how did you end up here? Yeah, I lost you for a second there. I'm not sure if the bandwidth is okay on your side, but um, if I heard your question correctly, you were, you were basically looking for um, my life story since, um, since I was a baby. But um, no, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a GI physician here in Vancouver. I'm a clinical professor of medicine at the university and work at the large hospital here, Vancouver General, where I still do, you know, some intervention. So the pancreas work or the surgical endoscopy feel that you are very familiar with, I know. But most of my time these days is spent in the medical AI space. I founded a company, as you know, Satisfy Health about uh, eight years ago, 2015, I think it was. And um, it's gotten busier and busier and more and more opportune. So I spend little time at the hospital these days and much more of my time running the company and um, trying to get us to the next level so which I'm delighted about it's a very exciting space that's why we're talking today so yeah a little bit of hospital work a lot of AI work well that's great this is this is a really nice transition and and we're gonna get into that in a little bit but you know you mentioned that you spend most of your time now in uh, AI and basically uh, clinical applications of AI and you know, I, I was wondering, how did you become interested in AI? I think um, you said you mentioned you found it satisfying in 2015. So I would say that you're not just an early adapter, but uh, <laughs> but very early. What made you interested in AI? Um, and what do you think drove you into that field? I think like a lot of physicians anyway, I'll say, I didn't have a background in, in, in digital technology, in AI, uh, really at all. I certainly had a research background. You know, I did what many of us do, which is spend some time in the lab, play with cells, look at Helicobacter, publish a lot, and then, you know, do more research in the interventional endoscopy space over the years. But I just had a an itch that I couldn't satisfy, that I wanted to go more into the entrepreneurial space, more into the um, industrial aspects of medicine, shall we say, bring products to market solve solutions um so i was doing some informal consulting and just through some reading i think i was sitting with a journal in 2014 and there was a paper on training the human eye better 
to interrogate polyps, look at them in real time, do an optical biopsy, right, as you and I do or try to do. And it just triggered my mind. And I thought, why are we trying to improve the human eye when it's probably a lot easier and quicker and better to do it with technology in conjunction with the, with the physician? And I, thought I was connected in the right networks, right time, right place, having spent some time in this entrepreneurial world that um, I set up my first joint venture to do with AI. And you know, it grew arms and legs from them. But it was basically about being in the right time at the right place with the right connections and having one idea that stimulated my um, interest. And uh, it really grew very, very quickly from there. Um, when I got into the space and realized how much there was to do, uh, uh, but that it was an, an early space in our world of GI, it was like, this is exciting. This is what you want to do. Get in at the beginning hopefully be a, a leader rather than a follower. There's nothing wrong with following. I still follow quite a lot of things. But uh, I wanted to, it was exciting to, uh, to be at the forefront. So hopefully we've shown ourselves to be uh, a lead in this space. And um, that's the short version. Yeah, I, I, I like it. It's a, it's a really good story. And you make a great point. You know, we uh, training the human eye it's great and it works. It works pretty well for a lot of different people and a lot of different institutions. But if you think of, if you think globally, um, the idea of training the human eye is just um, not very practical. Uh, there are a lot of places, a lot of areas that don't have access to expertise and uh, experts in, in certain areas. And so if you can actually create a computer program that can tell you what type of polyp you're looking at, um, you can expand the access to highly uh, high level healthcare to a lot of people around the world um and so it, it's a great great way great uh story of inspiration of how this happened but i want to get in and hear a little in a little bit more detail about you mentioned you've been um a physician scientist basically and that's a lot of our listeners are um in that field or going into that field um, they're basically interested in technology from a research standpoint. Um, they've got a lot of publications like yourself. And, you know, a lot of people will have a satisfying career for the rest of their lives um, within that field. But you've taken a step towards entrepreneurship um, from being a physician scientist to being, to being a, a health uh, technology entrepreneur. And I was wondering, you know, what kind of struggles did you have um, making that decision in the first place? And um, was it an easy tra transition? Was it very difficult? Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. I don't think the decision to start uh, was difficult. I was truly looking for a new stimulus. I was looking for a new challenge. You know, we're all wired differently. I was certainly looking for a different direction in my career. Uh, so starting was not an issue. I didn't need to be uh, uh, convinced to get something up and going. Um, staying in the game at many, on many occasions needs more convincing because depending on how you do it, and there are many, many ways to do it and probably more ways not to do it, it can get intimidating when it comes to uh, the financial implications. These things don't come cheaply. If you're putting your own money in at the beginning, it can get frightening very quickly. Um, to uh, understanding the ramifications of 
who owns intellectual property that you may may or may not develop. That that's a fairly steep learning curve that uh, is not for the faint-hearted. Um, how to use and whether you are allowed to use data and how to get data. So it's getting data, using it, and are you allowed to use it in no particular order? Those are challenges that can keep you awake at night when you're trying to build a vision that's very much based on access to uh, and utilization of data. Um, and then you get two or three or four years into that and you realize you're just starting because there's all the productization, there's all the regulatory needs and barriers and hurdles that need to be overcome. Um, so there are many potential hurdles and obstacles all along and certainly there are many situations where you sit and reassess if you want to continue and why you want to continue. Um, it's not it's not an easy journey, but it's undoubtedly a can be a very satisfying one. And I'm I'm delighted that I made the choice to go into this space and stay at it. And I think it's um, bearing fruit now. But, um, the, you know, the only other comment I make at this point to people thinking about this is I think a lot of research now and people developing intellectual property, um, it's no longer just a little silo in a university or a lab. If you want to bring your hard-earned work to the patient, which is really you know why we're doing this, um, you need to know how to work with industry uh, because you need that kind of know-how and you need that kind of funding support to get there. Uh, it's very hard, not impossible, but it's much harder to bring things from a lab and a university setup to uh, a product or a tool or a drug or a solution that's out there for our patients. So those collaborations with with uh, with entrepreneurial setups, industry, big and in, whatever it may be, big pharma, are critical. I think now, or very important for a lot of uh, wannabe uh, entrepreneurs. And you can you can consult with them. You can be part of the advisory team. You know, you don't have to do it all yourself from the beginning and take that big gamble. Depends on your life situation as well. I chose to take a bit more of a gamble, and it's paying off. Nice. Uh I like that answer. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, going through this myself right now, <laughs> it, it's really frustrating because this is not what we're trained for. You know, it's very easy to do clinical medicine and it's very easy to do research because we've been doing this for a very long time. But then you start thinking about doing something like this. And like you mentioned, you start thinking about IP and you realize that, oh, my God, this is not simple at all. <laughs> And uh, from a funding standpoint, if you have to fund um, a patent yourself, you're going to be shocked very quickly at how much things like this cost. Um, if you navigate getting your IP yeah. from the clinches of um, a healthcare system or a university, that's also another, uh, another hurdle. And then, you know, even something as simple as in incorporating and just learning the ins and outs of doing something like this. Just looking at um, the tax implications is <laughs> is a, a big thing that can be scary for a lot of people. Um, but I agree with you. I think that the best way to deliver your research to a patient is to engage um, within that that aspect of healthcare, which is a development aspect. Um, and and like you said, you know, building those connections with the industry, whether through um, advising or consulting. Uh, can can make it easier for you to to go down that path. So, Mike, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in 
the very early stages, um, you know, again, uh, a lot of the listeners here are physician scientists. They probably got a lot of ideas. A lot of them are interested in that transition of uh, what happens after you get an idea. And so I'll ask you, first of all, you said you were reading a medical journal. You thought, you know what? This is an interesting question. I want to see if we can get a machine to do this instead of a human. What was your next step? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that straight. It wasn't that simple. It wasn't just a light bulb moment with that particular paper. I, I already had um, enough scientists, shall we say, and technical people within my network that when there was the right opportunity to go after the team, or at least the genesis of a team was there. So the basic ingredients had already been set up. And I really believe in the, it's a bit of a trite comment or a cliche to say, but networking is hugely important. It's, it's incredible how many times a relationship that I forged five years ago um, comes back five years later in a, in a go forward uh, fashion with individuals or with, uh, with groups. So, um, you know, the next steps after, let's say, deciding that it was worth applying some of these networks and ideas to the column polyp space. Um, was sitting down, doing the things you mentioned, incorporating a group, right? Putting some of the um, the, the the constructs around it, some of the protections. Um, it can be difficult and potentially dangerous uh, for people to go very far down the path of using data that maybe they're not allowed to use um, uh, from retrospective. Uh, uh, um, silos um, or developing intellectual property um, that uh, that they haven't protected. Um, uh, all sorts of implications. Um, so, um, you know, having the right advice from the beginning, speaking to other successful entrepreneurs, which I did, having either somebody in your team who's a finance expert or getting some uh, advice first is very important. I spoke with um, lawyers very early on in this journey to make sure that we, I and then our small group at the beginning was not making any missteps. Because again, I've seen many groups, uh, you have too, I'm sure, who are two, three years, four years into these things, and they just didn't do the foundational stuff at the beginning. Obviously, nothing gets done for nothing. So at the beginning, you've also got to look and say, okay, I have these amazing ideas and ideas that don't get um, executed upon are, are called dreams, right? So uh, to make your ideas uh, into reality rather than just a pipe dream, you need to identify a team and a source of funding. So that's, you know, back to the bootstrapping idea. You're either putting your hand in your own pocket or some colleagues' pockets as co-founders. You are trying to get grants which are difficult as you know um you're trying to get some seed funding or some pre pre-seed funding from your friends and your family and your networks and having them believe in you um uh to the point that you can get a proof of concept so you know that's the journey that we took at the beginning thankfully through the networks i had i was working with some pretty established people in this space already um uh, who had a lot of success in the AI space. So I wasn't starting out with people who knew nothing about commercialization, who not, knew nothing about intellectual property or patents or um, regulatory implications or fundraising. Um, so if you can get those people at least in your network at the beginning, even if not in your team, then you're starting in the right way. 
rather than trying to chase your tail five years later when all of your hard work goes up in smoke. All right. So, you know, I, I had questions about funding, but I think we've addressed some of that. <laughs> um, and, you know, you mentioned some good sources of funding. I think that a lot of people should understand that sometimes you might have to use some of your own money going for some pre-seed funding. Family and friends um, are a good source. You know, non-diluting funds are a good idea, like grants. You know, I think uh, SBIR is is one of the really good sources of funding that people can try, um, especially really early on. Um, and, and that can be a really quick um, support for you in early on in your journey. Um, and then going for seed rounds, maybe when you're a little bit more mature and, and you have possibly maybe an MVP or at least a, a clear pathway um, uh, to commercialization. And then you mentioned some information about team building. I think that this might be one of the most important things, if not the most important thing that you can do if you want to be successful. Like we were talking about, as physicians, we're really good at understanding the clinical environment, the science behind things. But you mentioned having someone with finance experience, with experience in the, in the market. I think that that is absolutely essential. I, I remember doing some market research and <laughs> some projections um, on my own and uh, some of my um, finance friends laughing at them because they were <laughs> very silly. And of course, you know, having access to someone um, with experience in um, law, particularly um, corporate law and intellectual property, uh, these are really important things. So that was a really good answer and uh, it needed some unpacking. So, you know, let's focus a little bit on, on Satisfy now. You know, I think that you're clearly one of the many players um, in the AI field and GI, particularly in, in visual um, AI and computer vision. And I was wondering, how are you guys trying to differentiate yourself um, within this field? There are a bunch of other players in this area. How is Satisfy differentiating themselves from everybody else? Very good question. So, you know, hopefully in lots of ways, um, we were an early mover in this space. And there is the, the, there can be a good and a bad thing to first or early mover advantage. Um, and as you also correctly mentioned, there are several players in this space. Well, actually, there are many people in this space. I review for the journals every week, and uh, it gets to the point where I have to turn down a lot of review requests because I just don't have the time. Uh, so everybody is publishing. Everybody, lots of people are publishing in AI in our GI world. Um, however, most of those groups cannot get beyond a proof of concept to a robust model that you can use, you know, in different populations that can be approved, that has the money to get uh, through a large multi-center trial, that gets regulatory uh, clearance, gets on a piece of hardware or in the cloud and is distributed out there, you know, in the States or across North America or, you know, elsewhere, right? So most groups cannot get there because there's just too many of the challenges that you mentioned, the regulatory, the, 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 the fundraising, the legal. But the, um, uh, the differentiating factors are I, I would say being very academically productive. Um, so right from the beginning, I said to the team, we need to publish. We need It's a very good way to validate your ideas, of course. It's a very good way for you to prove your pedigree to the community, whether that be investors, whether that be industry partners, whether it be uh, getting other important people on board. So I'm very proud now of the ilk of 
advisors, clinical advisors that we have in our team. You know, if you look at the fields of, I don't know, colon polyps, cancer, upper GI cancers, Barrett's, Crohn's, colitis, intestinal ultrasound, you name it, different things we're working in. We have some of the top names, bar none, in each of those spaces working quite closely with us, some very closely. And you don't get those people just because you're friends. I'm a pretty friendly guy, I think. And I have lots of good friends in the GI space. But just picking up the phone and saying, hey, please come work with us, you know, isn't going to work for more than a few weeks if you don't have anything to hang your hat on. So we convince such people to come on board um, by our academic uh, credibility. And then that is a self-perpetuating thing, right? Where you get more pedigree people on board, they want to do better and better studies. So there's the academic output um, uh, through publication and podium exposure. There is the, and this was strategic, there was the platform approach. So I never wanted this to be uh, providing modular solutions. So I'm not knocking groups who provide modular solutions. By that, I mean a tool that will detect a polyp or a tool that will maybe even differentiate a polyp as a standalone solution. People like you and I want solutions that make our jobs easier uh, in terms of the the low-hanging fruit, the painstaking stuff, the stuff that maybe we, we, we don't like doing or we can be better, uh, we, we can improve our performance so that we can focus on the patient as a whole. So I want something that helps me. Let's talk about the colon. Tell me that I got to the cecum for sure and record it. Tell me how quickly I withdrew the scope and record it without my doing anything. Help me find polyps, so increase my polyp detection rate. Help me characterize those polyps in real time so I can potentially throw them in the garbage and save a bunch of money. Um, tell the patient straight away. Tell me what my bowel prep was like. Put all of that information and more into a report automatedly so when I sit down at the end of my procedure, I can read through it, maybe make a couple of quick edits, and I'm done. Set the surveillance interval, do the coding, do the billing, all from an automated standpoint. Those full workflow options are there. You know, we've got a bunch of them, which we're putting together. So I think a end-to-end, -end, shall I call it, um, ecosystem approach to the needs in GI imaging is what we are. I won't say the word unique because unique means literally you, but you know, we're pretty unique in that regard uh, uh, with that approach. Um, um, we brought a huge, I made a significant uh, direction change for the group a couple of years ago and said, look, we've, we're building these multiple solutions, but we need to have a very robust regulatory roadmap. There's no point in having a suite of solutions and not being able to bring them there to the market. So mm, I don't know, I'm going to say eight or nine people in my team alone are essentially very involved in a day-to-day -day basis in the regulatory uh, stuff. You know, it takes a lot more than we physicians believe to do regulatory work. Trust me, all the paperwork, things that most doctors don't even know, the design history file, you know, validating your models, the, the intimate level of paperwork involved is incredible. Your code history, doing, the, doing code freezes, you know, not using another updated version of a code in a trial after you've done a freeze. This is important stuff that most doctors don't know, and it takes a huge amount of uh, either outsourcing or people in the team. So, you know, addressing the right needs in your team. And I think we've done that on a fairly lean budget. We've tried to stay on our lane. 
but we've also tried to listen to the clinicians and industry out there to address their needs. So again, I'm trying to answer your question around how we differentiate. It wasn't just going after an idea. You know, there's something in the industry that you probably know of called market product fit or product market fit, uh, which is, you know, just because you and I have got a great idea, if you haven't done a bit of research and tested on your communities, your GI colleagues, your patients and industry, you go way down the rabbit hole and you got a solution that nobody wants. On occasion, you're just brilliant and you're right and they don't know what they don't know. And then you finally come out and they recognize, wow, this is an amazing uh, advance. But most of the time, you can do some testing in advance. So we've done a lot of that work as well so that we don't go down paths that are fruitless. Nice. I, I like that. I think you mentioned a, a few things there. So you mentioned the scientific publication aspect, which is a great thing because you also mentioned regulatory. And I think you know there are two levels of, of regulatory when we talk about clinical uh, products. There is a regulatory level that is uh, the conventional regulatory level, which is the FDA um, and other regulatory bodies across the globe, if, if you're looking um, uh, internationally. And then there is regulation at the level of the clinician, because if the clinician is not convinced with your product, they're never going to use it. And it doesn't matter if the FDA approved it or not. Um, and so the publications kind of address both of these aspects, but um, the, the clinician uh, regulatory part more, I think. And then you definitely mentioned um, working on regulatory pretty early on. I think that this is one of the biggest uh, barriers to entry for AI in particular, uh, because you know data is... Maybe maybe when we talk about column polyps, data is abundant, uh, maybe not so much for other areas, but getting FDA approval is, is one of the biggest barriers to entry into that field. And then um, I think you talked about having a comprehensive solution and maybe, maybe something like a foundational uh, model that will do pretty much everything that you need to do in the endoscopy suite and uh, handle that workflow from start to end. And that is an absolutely, you know, fantastic idea. I, I'm, I'm rooting for you because <laughs> I want to have something like this in the near future. So let's well, I've got have something because you know what, unlike you and your Bayern Munich affiliations, my team, Everton in the, in the English Premier League, you know, just about survive relegation. So I need a distraction because football ain't doing it for me right now. Yeah. <laughs> Who's your team? Remind me. Everton. A shameless plug uh, for the other the, uh, the other team in Liverpool. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully they'll do better <laughs> next season. <laughs> you know, avoiding yeah. relegation is still a, a good a good thing, right? <laughs> we we, so... we 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 kept our tenure going, yeah. <laughs> Um, so let me ask you this, and this is going to be a tough question. Um, but you know, you, you guys have been around since 2015, but we don't have a product on the market yet. Um, how far are we from seeing satisfying the endoscopy suite? And the reason I'm asking is, you know, I talk to a lot of my everyday colleagues about, you know, different companies. Whenever I mention satisfy people, you know, your regular GIs have not heard of it. And I'm guessing that is the reason. And, you know, I'm just wondering, like, how how close or how far are we from seeing Satisfy being used in a market or being offered in a market? 
So, you know, clearly there's some things that right now I can't divulge on a podcast, um, uh, yeah. uh, except to say that uh, the, 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 the simple answer to your question is very soon. Uh, but, um, you know, we haven't, so we've been relatively stealth for a while building this platform, as I mentioned to you, but it's, it's not that we don't already have industry um, uh, relationships and, 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 and deals. For example, this was announced um, a number of months ago. We have a partnership with uh, LMNT, which is the largest GI-specific um, CRO in the IBD space. So they run many, many, many of the phase two, phase three trials for Crohn's and colitis for all the big pharmaceutical groups. We um, are their AI partner in this space in relation to addressing central reading, for example. Okay, so taking taking some of the inefficiencies out of the, the central reading process uh, by using AI tools. So. Of course, this is a new space, that particular one I just mentioned, and that's why we're sitting down with groups like the FDA to see exactly what it takes to have those tools be used in um, actual clinical trial uh, practice as opposed to as a proof of concept. We have that tool, for example, being used already in the UK in a multi-center trial as a proof of concept with a big pharmaceutical group, but um, bringing them to market is a little different. So we already have commercial deals with some of our work, uh, particularly in, in, in the uh, pharma and the CRO space, uh, the, the clinical practice space, um, all I'll say to you with a smile on my face is very shortly. That's good. That's, that's exciting. Um, but you, you did mention the partnership with um, Alimentive. And, you know, there has been, I think, a bunch of, um, uh, let's call it an acquisition and, and maybe a couple of uh, partnerships or collaborations. So I think you guys acquired DocBot um, recently. And then um, you were having or developed some partnership deals with um, uh, Virgo and Alimentive. You know, I, I have a couple of questions about this. The first is, how did these partnerships come about? Just to kind of give us an idea about how these things happen. Um, and then yeah. how do you foresee this helping satisfy and, you know, advancing your goals in the future? But also, how do you see it affecting the GI field in general? Yeah. What's that old phrase, no man is an island, which of course now we should say no person or no human is an island, or no no company is an island. I think partnerships and collaborations are really key in this space for sure. And that's certainly a model that we've employed. You know, we're not arrogant enough to think we can do everything ourselves. Uh, and also you have resource limitations and, you know, you have to choose your direction and focus on that. So um there's partnerships and then there's also uh, uh collaborations with industry or, or or commercial deals so the alimentive one that you mentioned specifically um you know i've known that group for several years again the power of networking um we have been making noise on the podium for quite some time around the need for ai in practice and in trials um and again a relationship coming around um with um Further discussion with that group, you know, we realized now was the time to bring AI tools and thankfully uh, they agreed that we were the group to do so and, and we were very happy that they were the group for us to make our first uh, foray into the central ring and the clinical trial space. So that's a, an amazing relationship so far and we are certain that's going to uh, bear fruit for both groups uh, going forward. Um, other partnerships, collaborations are really important. You know, some of the work, again, I won't go into names right now, Barra, but um, we've also worked at several universities around the globe. Many groups have approached us and me and said, you know, they developed some very nice models, but they have no idea how to bring them to 
the patient, how to get through trials, how to do regulatory, how to fund them. And they've come to us with their nascent IP. And we've helped to further develop with our team and to bring towards, you know, making it truly a product that you can get out there. So that, again, I won't go into more detail except to say that several very high profile university groups have also approached us in the last 12, 18 months. And we're working on several of those relationships right now um, uh, to bring that brain power through Satisfied um, to the market. So I, I strongly believe in having a very open mind to collaborating with people. Don't be threatened by it. Of course, the devil is in the detail. You need to know what you're getting into in relationships. And it's important to be fairly upfront right from the beginning, if you can, rather than um, uh, going 12 months into a relationship and not knowing the terms. But the power of bringing more expertise is huge. And, you know, there's, there's often a win for everybody involved rather than thinking, oh, I'm diluting too much. I'm, I'm giving up too much. I'm, you know, I can do this myself. Maybe you can if you are, you know, Apple or Google or big industry groups, big leaders in this space, the big tech groups like Medtronic. You know, I, I tip my hat to that group. They really made a significant effort to put the word out there about the, the need for AI in the GI space. And I, I commend them uh, frequently when I see people in their team like Austin and and NGO, you know, on what they've done for this space to 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 make it much more um, visible and uh, to to, the, to 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 our colleagues, right? Um, still want to uh, compete against them, but I commend groups like that who really made the effort to, with their you know their large treasure trove, to get the word out there. Absolutely awesome, I, and I agree. It's a team sport. I think it's not. Yeah, no, no one man is an island. You're absolutely right. I think we talked a, a little bit about different barriers um, in the AI space. We talked um, about regulatory. Uh, we talked about data and uh, you know ownership of data, the sparsity of data that you can actually use for commercial uses, and the um, difficulty navigating dealing with the data that you already have if if you have data from a university or something like that. But there is one aspect that we haven't talked about, and you know, you know this better than than I do. But uh, whenever you have a product or an idea, the first question that investors will ask you is, "Who's going to pay for this?" And in AI, so far, there isn't any type of reimbursement that I'm aware of, at least within the GI space, where insurance is paying for um, a policy detection software or a policy characterization or any of that stuff, and so. What is your reimbursement strategy? Um, and do you guys are you guys considering pursuing a reimbursement strategy where insurance is paying for your device? How, how are you guys thinking about that? Yeah, uh, yeah, very important question. And 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 the simple answer is yes, of course we are because you you need to, uh, and you also will not get industry funding. Uh, or sorry, VC funding or, or, or from other sources if you don't have a, a clear or at least a vision towards how you're going to achieve reimbursement. Um, the more expanded answer is I don't believe that anybody truly knows exactly how this is going to play out. There are many different models out there right now. Some groups trying to, let's say, with basic caddy for polyps, polyp detection software. Are you leasing the, the device with the software on a monthly basis? Are you doing it on a fee per use? Are you buying the equipment outright with some software updates over the first two or three years? Are you bundling it with your equipment if you're a big industry player? 
That's really unclear. I said on the World Endoscopy Organization, so the WEO committee, uh, looking at some reimbursement needs in AI, you know, and that group came out with some position statements recently on the need for bodies like CMS to look at reimbursing CADX and CADE. Um, but that doesn't mean they're going to do it. They're not going to give a fee code uh, tomorrow. Um, so hopefully that will come. But I think we are a little way away because we need more real world studies that prove what we've been saying for a while, which is, you know, you do save lives and potentially save costs. It's all about saving costs. It's about making healthcare better. But you make things better, ideally at a cost neutral or cost saving fashion. So therefore, you're living in the dark ages if you're not embracing new technology like AI. That's proven up. We might be a little bit away from uh, that right now. And that's, I'll bring you back to the comment earlier around more of an ecosystem approach, which is where I think HMOs, insurance bodies, um, hospitals, physician groups, or um, uh, national institutions. I work in Canada, you know, so, the, so let's say the provincial or the federal uh, health system, uh, the National Health Service in the UK, you know, different governmental bodies in Europe, uh, how they look at the overall uh, utilization of dollars and euros and pounds, whatever, over the, over the course of the year and recognize that some of these technologies are moving the field forward and saving lives and maybe saving dollars. Um, and maybe they see a fuller approach as being the one that actually offers value. So like a value chain of going all the way from live quality feedback to the doctor, slow down, clean the lens some more, get a better prep, suction some more. You didn't reach the cecum. You saw a polyp there, take it off into a report. All of those things, that's where a group maybe can see um, value. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, in, uh, insurance. Um, just one example on that, you know, Crohn's and colitis activity is poorly categorized in practice. And you and I make choices about changing patients' drugs or biologics on our interpretation of what we see on screen often, rather than a robust evaluation of the Mayo score or the UCEIS score or whatever it may be. If it comes to the point where groups actually payers insist on the most objective and accurate score in lifetime in practice before they will allow you to make that change of a very expensive drug, double the dose, go to a new biologic, continue on the drug, any of those decisions, which are a little bit random right now or um, clouded in mystery, when they want the most objective read, if that read is an AI read, that's where the value comes as well. So I, I'm not concerned. I think it's just that groups who don't have a broader vision and or staying power may well struggle because I think we all thought two or three years ago that AI would be much more ubiquitous in GI than it is today. I just think it's gotten there slower rather than um, there being any significant road bumps in the road. I think it's absolutely coming. And you and I will look back and have this podcast in three or four years' time and you go, yeah, we are both talking about this and here it is in our practice on a day-to-day -day basis um and reimbursement is clearly a key one no one's doing anything for free um uh well maybe we can convince the biggest philanthropist to take this on and you know just them, them are living in nirvana but um otherwise you know someone somewhere is paying for it along the way whether it be provincial or the federal health system medicare medicaid whether it be insurers whether it be 
you know, drug companies, whatever it may be. There's, there's a payer somewhere. They have to see value. And um, I don't think modular solutions are going to cut. Nice. I, I love it. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we all know, like you said, that there is tremendous value in AI use in healthcare. And um, at some point, they will see it. <laughs> And and that's when uh, I think reimbursement will be will be very clear. But I agree with you. I think within the next four or five years, it's going to be ubiquitous. Everybody's going to be using some kind of AI. And so, you know, this is interesting because it kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next. So we've talked of, so far. We've talked about computer vision uh, within AI. We've talked about visual diagnoses, visual um, characterization, but. Since OpenAI released um, GPT-3 and GPT-3.5, um, the world has changed. <laughs> it really has, and it happened faster than anything I've ever seen. Um, I, I'm, I'm not that old, and so I, I don't know about uh, breakthroughs in science in the 60s and 70s, but I've never seen anything like this. It's been absolutely mesmerizing watching how this happened. And so I want to talk a little bit about uh, large language model next. Um, so I know that you guys do uh, some kind of automated reporting. Um, and my first question is, are you guys using large language models for this? Or is it a little bit more simple? Yeah, so we have focused mostly on computer vision, as you mentioned there in the intro of this question, uh, for the imaging needs. But look, there's no doubt that LLMs or large language models, you know, any kind of generative AI um, to put out script or other pictorial uh, output for us to have in the records for the patient is critical and is taking away the, the burden. So, yeah, we are using LLM type uh, technology in some of that, um, that uh, script output space. Um, again, you know, I want to focus. I've wanted the group to focus on what was our core strength to date, which is the interpretation, a little bit up and down the chain, but the interpretation of the imagery that we have. In um, you, you can you know you can enrich the data. You can you know we're trying to build predictive models out of imaging, right? Not just diagnostic models today or detection, but predictive ones. So you need to use all the allied metadata. But of course, we want to have structured reports that are also indicative where we're at today uh, uh so yeah some of the some of the um the report generation what we've done so far uh, uh a couple of years ago was more basic and now of course with the advent of as you say the gbt type of technology uh and large language models um of course we're using that kind of work as well and it's exciting i mean if you can integrate that into your play and your platform that's an even more full workflow value chain um I was wondering how far do you guys think you might go within that direction? Or do you think that for the next few years, you guys are going to be focusing on visual AI? Yeah, you know, again, it, depend, it depends on the size of your group. If you really are a, a global Goliath and you've got, you know, uh, billions of dollars, um, uh, maybe without domain expertise, you can still take that, that um, approach and, you know, throw a bunch of resource at it. We've gotten a reputation for being very adept at evaluation of particularly the live imagery that we get in, in GI, at getting more and more insight from those data types. You know, we've been doing a lot of work in the different disease states that we've talked about through this podcast a little bit to um, 
try and you know have a superhuman read of what's on the screen because you and I might see A, B, and C if we're really good at we're trying to put an expert on your shoulder. So with AI, I'm trying, we're trying to make sure that if you're an average performing physician in this particular space, you've got a world expert on your center through the AI model telling you what you should be seeing. We believe that we can have models that will see even more than the expert and be predictive. So that's going to be our core focus. But of course, again, in the practical space, for now, in our GI world, you know, we want to also give um, reports of our work in a more automated fashion. So we will certainly continue to do work in that space. But the core imagery for now is our is our sweet spot. Max, and, and that specialization is actually a strength, I think, because uh, like you said, you can get overextended, but um, focusing on your strengths is uh, is the right way to go. Not always looking at the next shiny object. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I'm I'm glad to be talking to you about this. Um, I've been very very interested in AI in the uh, past few years, and looking into different resources that clinicians can use to learn about AI. Um, I came across uh, the book that you guys recently published. I think it's called AI in Clinical Medicine. And just, you know, looking at the title, it's a monumental task that you guys uh, took on. So tell us a little bit about it. Uh, for the, anybody who's, if there's a video feed with this podcast, if you look at my hairline, it was it was a lot better three years ago. Maybe that answers the question around the, around the book. Um, uh, that's kind of vaguely true. Um, it was, it took on a life of its own. Uh, taking on a textbook is... Now, I'm delighted because the product is out there, as you say. So Wiley, uh, Wiley uh, Blackwell, the large medical publisher, um, asked me to lead edit this thing over three years ago. The issue with books is that they can be outdated in the tech space before they hit the shelf. But we wanted this, and hopefully it is, I think it is, to be a, uh, a foundational uh, um, book, right, that you can get the basics. It's meant to be for... Um, the medical healthcare professional, not somebody who's a world expert in AI. Um, uh, we want people to get a flavor of the building blocks of AI, the basics of AI technology, the data needs, and then the applications in the various fields across medicine. So it's not an AI and GI, it's radiology, dermatology, psychiatry, gastroenterology, surgery, you know, rheumatology, you name it, right? That most of the medical fields are involved there. And then looking to the future, looking to reimbursement, looking to integration into healthcare systems, looking how it really does help workflow. All of those aspects, uh, looking at digital twins, you know, we touched on many of these things. Uh, again, the book was finished, I don't know, nine, 10 months ago, and it's taken all this time to come, come to publication. So there's already, you know, new stuff that right now, if I was writing it today or editing it, you know, we'd have stuff about large language models and chat GPT and more about AGI and all of those uh, evolving themes. But to stay in your lane and to be a core curriculum, which I think is a key need in, in, in the medical uh, education world, um, we are very proud of this effort. Uh, there's 140 authors, I think, from around the globe, 45, 50 chapters. A strenuous effort on top of being an occasional physician and the CEO of a, of a, of a busy startup. But um, 
I'll I'll have a little think before I do my second book. Put it that way. <laughs> we'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> Honestly, I'm I'm really happy that uh, there's something like this out there because uh, absolutely, as you mentioned, there is a massive need uh, for this in medical education, um, and we need things that are easily accessible um, and and easily understandable by clinicians because uh, nobody has the time to go and start reading about exactly how these things work. Um, even the experts have trouble understanding it. And so um, this is a really, really great work uh, that you guys have done. Um, so I think we're kind of getting close to our time limit here. So I'll ask you a couple more questions before we end this. And the first one is, you know, as a physician, scientist, turned entrepreneur, um, after all these years, um, what is the one thing that what one piece of advice that you would tell someone who's embarking on this journey be open-minded uh, uh, uh don't think you're going to do it overnight if you are if you have a success uh, in a very short time you're either incredibly lucky or just outrageously brilliant uh, or both uh, it takes a lot of effort you have to be uh resilient um but take the right counsel early. You know, speak to people who've done it successfully or not. You'll learn lessons at every juncture in that regard. Speak to the areas that physicians are not experts in. We're not business people. You know, I've had to learn. We're not regulatory experts. We don't know finance very well, or most of us don't. We don't know the legal ramifications. So get that counsel early on so that you, um, if you're going to lead or direct or put together a team, that you um, you don't make any avoidable slips early on. So, you know, early counsel, early uh, team building, early um, networking. And you have to be somewhat dogged and determined because if you're not, it's, um, well, listen, we work in medicine. Medicine, even in the hospital, uh, has its challenges, right? When we have to deal with bureaucracy and getting new technologies through or, you know, whatever inefficiencies in the healthcare system and we sit on committees. It's a different level in entrepreneurship, but it's the same thing. There's always challenges. You have to be willing to see it through, right? There's, it's, not a, it's not an easy journey, but, but it can be, and it's certainly been my experience, an incredibly rewarding journey. You, you meet people that you'd never thought you'd meet. You, you, re you relate to people, uh, interact with groups you never thought. On the, on the front of the books that you just mentioned, um, there's a, uh, the world's first robotic AI artist called Ada or Ida, Ida Robot. Um, I managed to convince the creator of uh, the robot to have her art on the front cover of the book from having been at the Venice Biennale Art Festival. So you, the overlaps here in this space are really intriguing and exciting. And uh, it's, it's, it, it absolutely can be worth it. Wonderful. I love that answer. You know, it's very, it's very, very hard, uh, but it can be very rewarding. I, I completely agree. Um, okay, so, you know, the last question <laughs> um, is going to be, what do you think differentiates physician entrepreneurs from other entrepreneurs? What do you think is the thing that makes a physician entrepreneur more... Um, well, let's say better or worse. And then the other thing is, do you feel like it helps you when you pitch to investors or is it actually the opposite? Um, so the first, but I think we're, you know, 
we're naturally inquisitive. I mean, there's most people going to medicine, they're, they're inquisitive. We, you know, we want to know diagnoses. We want to know how to treat. So we're inquisitive. We are usually, not always, but many physicians have great um, networking skills, but we're good at communication, mostly, not exclusively. But, you know, many physicians are not, um, are not shy. They, they know how to engage a room, how to engage people. Uh, so they have those networking skills. Um, we're determined. You know, there's a significant work ethic in medicine because we work long hours. Uh, uh, so you're prepared to, you know, stay in the game and, and, uh, and see it through in your medical career or in the entrepreneurial space. So I think, you know, those key ingredients that we have as, as trainee doctors and then, you know, trained doctors uh, set us up well for entrepreneurship. However, and maybe it's changing, uh, but most physicians are not trained business people. Uh, so um, when you speak with industry, when you speak with uh, investors, um, you either have to learn quickly or you need to have the right people on your team who can be with you uh, or both. Uh, uh, you know, and that's the approach I've taken. You know, I've, I've made sure that I listen to my, to my uh, colleagues and friends uh, in the allied spaces so that I don't um, uh, misstep on investor calls or with industry. Uh, because yes, uh, you know, you will be asked the probing questions about your market fit, about your um, your um, your reimbursement uh, po- uh, strategy, uh, um, uh, and if you don't have a, a, a coherent answer for that, then you know you're going to lose the appetite and the interest and the confidence of would-be industry partners or investors. Um, so being a physician founder can certainly open doors, and I think I do feel that groups like it when the direction of the business is physician-led, if it's a medical field, because we've got our fingers on the pulse. So I think that we know where it needs to go and what are the challenges, but they want you to be very much uh, guided and um, educated by the right people in the field to have around you. But yeah, being physician-led, I think, can be can be very good. It just You just need to not just be a physician in the group, right? If you're just a doctor, you'll get found out pretty quickly. All right. So I think we're out of time, but do you have any questions for me? I usually give my guests that. that uh, no, well, you know, maybe a comment. <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, you're obviously younger in your career, quite a lot younger. Uh, uh, and I think um, doing what you're doing, I know that you have your own entrepreneurial uh, ventures uh, in device and various other applications. And clearly you're trying to, to evangelize the technology world through GI uh, through your podcast and other avenues, so I commend and I'm very um, I am very uh, proud of people coming through who show initiative. Uh, I love seeing younger people wanting to uh, move this space along. Uh, I wouldn't have even dreamed about starting a podcast when I was your age. So good for you, and um, it, we, the, the world, the, the the GI world, shall we say, our world needs more people like you to um to be the disciples to be the the people who the town criers with the large bells saying you know technology is coming you know come and learn about it right so that's all i got to say other than ask you maybe question when do you sleep if you do all the things that you're doing i don't know when you sleep (laughs) first of all thank you you're too kind um but in terms of sleeping i don't know i've probably been sleep deprived for the past five years But who hasn't been, right? Physicians, that's uh, that's the life. 
All right, Mike. Uh, thank you so much for being here. This has been a, an awesome conversation. Um, uh, very, very happy that we were able to get this done and hopefully we'll be able to get you again on the show in the future. Okay, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the privilege. That concludes this episode of the GI Startup Podcast with our guest, Dr. Byrne. I hope you all enjoyed it and thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review as it helps us create additional content.